almost Christmas. Woohoo! <laughs> Atomic Moms podcast is an ongoing conversation with parenting experts, celebrities, and listeners all over the world about the joys, funny moments, and complexities of caring for our little ones and ourselves. Hi, I'm your host, producer, woman behind the curtain. That's a Wizard of Oz reference. Ellie Noss. You can find us on social media at Atomic Moms and also at Ellie in LA. And, uh, you can check out our website, AtomicMoms.com. Subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. Let us know if you love us. Oh, okay. So for our holiday episode, I'm going to be sharing uh, two excerpts from interviews we did this past year that we absolutely loved, Dr. Robin Berman and Janet Lansbury. And when I was re-listening to them, I I couldn't get over like how much I had forgotten or how much more I was taking away from it, listening to it again after having some time away. So if you've heard these episodes before, listen anyway. Uh, <laughs> and I'm going to share some of my own stuff too in between. So uh, Dr. Shafali, who's a dear friend of Atomic Moms podcast, she spoke on Oprah's Super Soul Sunday about celebrating the ordinary. And I think that celebrating the ordinary is just so important to remember over the holidays when it seems to be all about the bright lights and the flashy crap under the tree. And a year before I saw her say that on Super Soul Sunday, I had written a piece for the Huffington Post about my dear great aunt Ida. She passed away last month at 104 years old, and we were each other's only relatives in Los Angeles, and she was an incredible person. And she was the first person I ran to when I found out I was pregnant. And in that piece, I, I wrote about find the magic in the ordinary. I wrote about finding the magic in the ordinary. And I'd like to share a little part of what I wrote. Ida loves children more than anything, more than astronomy or the pyramids or Hawaiian volcanoes or sauerkraut, because children share her sense of wonder. They aren't picky unish, uh, as she always said, and they don't plan everything to death. They find magic in the ordinary. I keep a special letter on my desk. It's an aerogram she wrote to family in the early 1970s. Everyone had advised Ida and Joe, her husband, to stay in California to retire quietly on their modest pensions. But the couple always said, making memories is so important. So they sold the house they had built with their own hands, bought a van, and lived at campsites across Europe and northern Africa for three years. The letter reminds me that my great-aunt Ida has always lived simply, abundantly, and on her own terms. So now I'm going to read part of that letter. It says, Malaga, Spain, December 26th. Dear Penny and Bob, do hope you had a beautiful trip and a very Merry Christmas. You must tell me all about it when we return. Had parties all over camp Christmas Eve. A large group of children and grown-ups walked through camp bearing lighted candles and singing. Spent evening around a Yule log at the beach, had drinks and sang. Decorated a Christmas tree. Our Christmas cards cut stars and flowers from Kleenex boxes. Used foil to cut a picture from a mag fa magazine fashion page. A model with a white dress, so I made an angel from her. Had a Chinese-American little girl help me make candy to hang on the tree. Bought one string of lights. Our tree was the best-looking one. She crafted beauty out of the ordinary, angels out of a magazine, ornaments out of a tissue box, a Christmas tree out of a branch she found on a walk. Reading her old letters and visiting with her reminds me that as an expecting mother, I don't need to have everything all planned out. I don't need to buy all the gadgets the baby blogs recommend in an effort to stay in control. I'm making a pregnancy pact with Great Aunt Ida to enjoy the moment I'm in, to follow my intuition over other people's advice, and to embrace this great big unknown. So I will be remembering Aunt Ida on this Christmas holiday, and I can't believe Sabrina is now two years old. Today I will be sharing with you all two of our favorite episodes. For our new listeners, the other interviewer you will be hearing is Bianca Kylik, our Atomic Moms co-founder. She and I had the chance to speak in-depth with two of today's leading parenting experts. I say parenting experts, but 
expert sounds so cold and clinical. And while Dr. Robin Berman is an associate professor of psychiatry at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and is on the clinical faculty at the UCLA Women's Life Center, which specializes in mental stability during pregnancy and postpartum, and she's a founding member of the Resnick Neuropsychiatric Hospital at UCLA and an advisory board member of Camilla and Matthew McConaughey's Just Keep Living Foundation, she uh, does all these clinical things, but she is one of the warmest voices in parenting you will hear. And I have selected part of our conversation to share with you today, but go back in the iTunes archives. You know, it's super easy if you subscribe on iTunes podcast app. You can just find all of our old episodes and you can listen to it in its entirety. And her book is Permission to Parent, How to Raise Your Child with Love and Limits. And I'll talk to you afterwards. Hi, Dr. Berman. Hi there. Hi, this is Ellie. And this is Bianca. Hi. Hi there. How are you? Good. Well, I've got to say this. I think I know that uh, Reese Witherspoon said that it should be handed out in every hospital room. I think it should also be mandatory summer reading. You know, kids have summer reading that they have to do for school. (laughs) Every parent should be handed this book in first grade. Yeah. Thank you so much. My heart is in it, and my I've just felt so strongly that people needed a little bit of a lifeline. And it is, and I feel like I will go back to it for the next 15, 20 years. I mean, I, there are, I have a sister who's 17 right now, and this applies to her. It applies to me, yeah. and I'm in my early 30s. I mean, I actually you am. I don't know so why I made a joke of that. But. Uh, when I give the, I've been going around the country giving the uh, parenting lectures, and when I give it to a preschool, they say it's the preschool age. When I give it to a high school, they say it's for high school. When It's just when I, parents have been sending me notes who've read it who have college-age kids and say, this is the perfect book to read if you have college. I'm thinking, hmm, that's interesting. I guess parenting is just so universal across. And it's like know, a great movie. <laughs> like, you know, when you see a great movie and you're always, you know, whatever whatever point you're at in your life, you take things from it, right? And then you go and see yes. the movie 10 years later and something else hits you. And great I feel like analogy. this book is like that. Absolutely great analogy. Dr. Berman, when you were writing this, um, you know, obviously when you set out to uh, to do a passion project and something that you believe in, you you have great hopes for it. Um, did you did you know in your bones at the time that it was going to have such a response and be so widespread into who it uh, pertained to, or or did, were you surprised by by what it became? You know, I'm surprised. I'm surprised by the emotional reaction to it. Um, a lot of people will, you know, run up to me on the street and say, "Oh my! I bawled all the way. I took your book on an airplane. I just sobbed for hours. It reminded me of my own growing up and what happened to me." And I think permission to parent is kind of a double entendre because, in one sense, the book is obviously, you know, I, I'm gonna get out my prescription pad and give you permission to parent your kids. But also, if you're really doing parenting right, you know, you get to reparent yourself. And so I think the emotional reaction has um, surprised me. I'm so glad Hollywood (laughs) has jumped on board. Like you mentioned, Reese Witherspoon said it should be handed in the living room. I I recognize the the Goop website of Gwyneth Paltrow. She put it on her website. I'm thinking there's something that's striking a nerve here. And I think it's just that we love our kids so much. And we want to do right by them. And I think this generation, this last 10 years, we've just gone overboard. And I wanted to write about what is a balanced middle between the way we were raised, where children were seen and not heard and yelled at and shamed and all that. All that was wrong. But now we've created kind of a new wrong, which is making our kids the center of the universe, never saying no. You know, I I cannot tell you how many consultations I do on parenting where parents will come in the couples and they'll say my kid is just ruling the roost and his toys are all over the house or her you know she's just taken over and she doesn't go to bed and she doesn't eat what she's supposed to eat how old's your kid four (laughs) (laughs) wow really you know that much power at four And, and if i've heard it once i've heard it 17 times so i also wrote you know try wanted to inspire people to kind of grab the reins oh you inspired and, me this morning i looked at my daughter sabrina and i was like oh girlfriend you got it coming now because i feel so empowered after reading this book because you say um oh, and that was the mission was to you know to empower people to realize that it's not safe if your parent isn't in charge you know 
these kids are given too many choices and they're negotiating. No, I don't want to. I don't want to go to bed. Like, okay, you're four, you're five, you're not in charge, or they're negotiating everything they're eating for dinner, or they, they don't want this, and the mom's becoming a short-order cook and jumping up and making four. It's like a little tyrant. And I think if you talk to the weakness, you end up with a fragile child. But you want to talk to the strength. Like, I, I so get that you don't want to go to bed. I so get you want to stay up till 10 o'clock, but bedtime 730. So I always and think when that you, And when you, sorry, when you talk about the tyrant thing, like when we are tyrants ourselves, like it doesn't feel good. Like when I'm being really yes. bitchy, like I'm not happy. So yeah. like we don't want, you know, just because they think they're getting their way, they're not happy getting their way either. Um, they are not happy getting their way, and it's not very safe. And what I've noticed as a psychiatrist is a massive increase in anxiety disorders. In the last yeah. 15 years, I've never seen such a run of anxiety well, disorders in kids and young adults. you got and two of often, them sitting right you know, here. <laughs> often when I'm talking to the kids, they say, you know, I, I could kind of manipulate my parents. You know, I could kind of get my way, and it didn't feel safe, and there was no one in charge. It's like... How you get away with a substitute teacher, things you would never get away with with your teacher. You know, kids are really yearning for a benevolent dictatorship. I always say it's it's not a democracy to be a parent. This isn't, okay, what's your, you know, you can hear your children's ideas and opinions, and that's wonderful. But ultimately, in terms of the rules and how your house functions, the, the more solid they are, the calmer kids get, the happier they get, the more they thrive, the, the better they're going to do in school, the more their teachers are going to like them, the more their friends are, you know, when they know how to share and take turns and be respectful and wait and, you know, it just, we've just become very overindulgent as parents, but it was super, super well-intentioned. We wanted to be different than our parents, and, I, and it was such a lovely instinct it just got lost in translation. I love you know, that. I love that you say, and because I want our listeners to hear when you said um, in the book, you write, "Remember, all feelings are welcome; all behaviors are not. Once guidelines are set, you have to enforce them consistently. Not following through with kids is like not finishing an antibiotic. One grows resistant bacteria; the other, resistant kids." And and I loved when you said, "Oh my God, all feelings are w- welcome." I was yeah. like, "Oh, that has been the missing piece." Like, that's the missing piece is that, you know, now parents are overindulging feelings. Oh, you don't want to go to bed. You don't feel like it. Let's discuss it for two hours. But you can have all the feelings in the room. That's why I always say the balance is you hold that feeling. You hear that feeling, but you still hold the line. Mm-hmm. Where parents get tripped up is they hear the feeling and then they switch their parenting. Oh, okay, let's make bedtime later. Or, oh, you don't want to eat your vegetables. Okay, fine, you can have dessert. They lose the line, and I think everybody wants to be heard and, you know, and known. I always say the absolute highest form of romance is to be seen and known, and kids are no exception. They want you to say, oh, I get it. You know, you want to watch that PG-13 movie because all your friends are, I so get that. And you allow all those feelings, and then you say, but you're nine, so we can't watch it. <laughs> but in a few years, we're going to watch that. You know, you're going to grow, and one day you'll be able. That'll be an appropriate movie for you. But you know, it's that balance because that that feeling when you honor a kid's feelings, you diffuse their big emotions. So they're all upset, and if you just go straight to go to your room, no, you can't do it. But you know, you bark at them. Then they just get more hysterical, more upset versus like, oh, I so get it, honey. Let me give you a hug. You empathize. You know, think of your, your husbands, right? If you come home and you've had a bad day, you just want a poor baby, right? <laughs> you don't want, when you say you were late for a meeting, you don't want the husband to say, I told you you should have left sooner and blah, blah, and barking you all the things you should have done. You just want a really good hug and a loving empathic yeah. statement. and. What we know from neuroscience now is that actually grows a better brain. I think the thing I learned in writing this book that was kind of the most revelatory was that good parenting changes the structure of a developing brain, meaning that you actually grow new pathways when you tell your kids, I know, I get it. They, they grow more connective tissue. They you know, feel more heard. 
And when you hold the line, you know, and they feel safe, that also grows neural pathways. So we, we have, you know, a ton of reasons to, to hold the feeling and, and hold the line, and, and neuroscience really backs us up. So when we lose our courage as parents and we want to get really wishy-washy and limpy, you know, I always say, don't parent in the moment. Parent for the future, you know. Am I letting my kid whine and get away and negotiate? Are those skills I really want to foster in the future, you know? Or do I want to, or am I just throwing this, you know, dog a barking bone? You know, the people just get tired and lazy. Like your dog barks, you throw him a bone. Like I saw a woman yesterday in a store, and the kid is begging and begging for a toy, and the mom says, we're not here to buy you a toy, and the kid cries louder. And then she says no, and the kid throws a bigger fit, and she says, okay, pick a toy. Oh, my God. <laughs> so basically you say throw a bigger fit whine louder and you get your way ultimately not a great long-term message a great long-term message is the world doesn't revolve around you we're here to buy a birthday present for your friend it's okay for you to feel disappointed yeah. that you're not getting one today because you want to teach kids to walk through those feelings you know what a great life skill that our biggest job as parents is being an emotion coach to teach kids to walk through those feelings so that, you know, when they grow up, they get to be really emotionally evolved so that when somebody cuts them off on the 405, they're not screaming and flipping them the bird. They're, they're able to regulate their feelings. And that skill, if you miss it in childhood, you can pick it up later, but it's much tougher and much more expensive right (laughs) (laughs) well and it's so interesting because I have noticed (laughs) with even one of my with my uh, 16 month old and she's almost 16 months um that even though she doesn't necessarily understand everything that I am saying she understands the energy about it and you know I've tried to start when she's um getting really upset uh you know the last couple weeks about various things um just speaking to it and I think what happened happens or what it feels like to me that happens is that when I speak to it, I align my energy with hers and she feels that connection and it settles her. And I mean, the minute that I say, I understand you're upset and you don't like this, she locks eyes with me and it, and she, and she stills. And I just think like, it's so crazy. I can connect with her without the actual words being maybe ones that she completely understands. How beautiful. That's actually at the heart of great parenting. That is at the heart because the connection, you know, we leave childhood, nobody remembers the violin lessons or the this or that as much as they remember how they felt connected to their parents. How did their mom make them feel understood, safe, heard, connected? And you're absolutely right. It's very pre-verbal to connect. It's very, you don't even need full-on language, you know, a touch, looking at your daughter in the eye, I get it, holding her that kind of connection that's what i'm talking about grows a stronger brain and a stronger kind of love affair you know for parents to the child that that's 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 the whole that's the goal of parenting right there that that's that's the essence of it is to hold on to that connection and people lose connection with their kids so easily because they bark orders at them and they get scared or they're scared to assert their authority and there's a lot of disrespect they there's constant breaking of the connection and we all make mistakes and we all lose it as parents and we all have deliveries we're not proud of and the beauty of parenting is that you get to go back and you know as your child gets older you know now she's little for this but if you make a mistake you know when she's four or five or six and say oh geez can I have a mommy do-over mommy didn't mean to say it like that my my volume was a little high if I could do it again I would do x y and z and then you show them you know that making mistakes is okay and that you're growing together and learning together and it's a whole we you know we can't expect ourselves to be perfect as parents yeah you know repair is part of the part of the gig but it sounds like you're off to the races you're you're on a a great path if you're already connecting with that young of a baby well on even days on the odd days i tend to screw up more (laughs) and and we're so allowed to screw up i mean because this is the ultimate on the job training yeah it is the ultimate on the job training and and as you go, you you know you get better, and you realize the that you know you have to be the lesson before you you can teach the lesson. So right. the classic one is parents are like stop screaming, 
<laughs> I told you to stop screaming, and they're screaming at the top of their lungs. Or I was at the park, and two little brothers were fighting, and the you know father said, "Knock it off, knock it off," and then he hit both of them and said, "Stop hitting." Oh, <laughs> so, and you tell this great uh-oh. story. <laughs> you share this story about um, kids on a on some sort of athletic field, and basically that the coach had the parents show up one day in their, like, sweatpants, and they had the kids sit in the bleachers, and the parents go out on the field, and the kids got to yell at the parents the way that the parents yell at them. And then after that, oh, that's brilliant. the parents were a little quieter in the stands, a little more <laughs> encouraging and more relaxed. got the lesson quickly. I was a, a, a soccer um, coach, and she said she got so tired of the berating of these young elementary school kids where they're screaming, get in the game, move your feet, what are you doing, that's the wrong play. And she said that the parents just can't, they think they're helping, which I think if they saw a film of themselves screaming and yelling and coaching from the sidelines, you know, I think they might see it differently. But when they're in the moment, they really think they're helping. And the coach obviously knew that the kids were losing their natural instincts. They were looking from the field of their parents to see what their parents were saying. And they were getting very discouraged. So the mom called the practice and said to the parents, you know, come in sweatpants and tennis shoes. And then she said to the kids, do exactly what your parents do. And so it was very cathartic for the kids because they started screaming, move your feet, what are you doing? That's a lot, you know, and all the kind of negativity and screaming and critique. And like you say, the parents got it very quickly. In, in AYSO soccer, they have a thing called Silent Day. And so if you've ever been, it starts at like four years old, AYSO, which I think is really, really early, you know, for athletics. But anyway, that's beside the point. But they, you know, most parents scream and yell even at four-year-olds and five-year-olds and six-year-olds who don't even remember which way the goal is. Mm -hmm. And they have one day where parents aren't allowed to speak at all. And kids are euphoric. I mean, (sighs) every coach I interviewed about the silent day, they're like, you've never seen such delighted, happy kids and one of the little six-year-olds I interviewed, I said, why did you like it so much? And he said, because I could actually play the game and it was mine. <laughs> exactly. And you talk like about how. six years old. Yeah, oh I mean, that goodness. dev is so sounds, it's like the saddest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> um, <laughs> you talk about how we can't impose our dreams on our children. And I was wondering if you could touch on narcissistic parenting a little bit. And yeah, it's interesting. I just wrote an article for Goop called The uh, Legacy of a Narcissistic Parent because I think in the age of selfies and the me, 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 we really, we really are kind of vicariously living through our children and projecting a lot of what we want for them, and we might not be seeing the soul of our own child. And the best example I have of that is um, a little boy I interviewed and the mom for the book who said that she really wanted her kid to be an athlete, even though the kid was, you know, very artistic and really not all that interested in athletics. She was pushing, pushing the basketball and put him on a travel team and got him privately coached. And she was running him around to all these games. And she said, instead of being on her cell phone for one game, she decided to just actually look at her child and he looked pretty miserable. And so on the way home, she said, honey, do you, do you like basketball? And he said, I, I really do, just just not the ball part. Not <laughs> 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 the part, you know, I like the uniform. Yeah, you know, like he literally, and she was wise enough to say, I won't be signing up next year. Like she was able to see, this isn't my kid. Yeah. But so many of these parents are, you know, thinking, I, I don't know if you guys read um, Malcolm Glad, Gladwell's book, but he talked about 10,000 hours to build a champion, you know, if you want to have a violinist, it's 10,000 hours of practice. If you want to have a concert pianist or if you want to have a, you know. Well, that's why I'm an anxiety expert because I have over 10,000 hours of it. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what it does to kids. It just creates anxiety. And maybe, maybe you're one of those parents who will, the one in a thousand who will get an amazing basketball player who will go on to, you know, play for college, maybe. But aren't you sacrificing childhood? I always say I think we've we've stolen something we didn't intend to steal, which is our kids' childhood. Yeah. You know, we want to give them the freedom, and we want to really say, oh, you don't want to play basketball? Okay, let's let's quit. And anytime I do a parenting consultation, you know, a lot of the fathers say, quit. What do you mean? I've already paid for all this coaching and and this teens, and he can't quit. And 
you know, and then I say, why? Because I never got to, and it always goes back to their own narcissism, you know, so I always, in order to check our narcissism as parents, which we all have, by the way, we all have it, is to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean to me, my kids quitting ballet? You know, what does it mean to me, my kids not going to that preschool? That's, that's the question at the heart of it, is when you can separate your needs from your kids and be like that mom who say, oh, you really don't like basketball, let's quit. And let's find something that really lights you up. Then you're really parenting, you know, your your child out of a spirit place versus out of your anxiety or ego place. What's which... your What's your advice to parents? Because, you know, a lot of times... I think it's hard for parents to know, like, is my kid just having an off day and they don't want to go to practice today and they don't want to do this today? How how would you how would you advise a parent who says, like, I can't tell if it's that they don't like it or they 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 just are like lazy right now and don't want to you know show up and do the work for what this is? Right. I think it comes to you know, did they did it start with with you imposing an agenda like they're going to be a basketball player, they're going to be a tennis player? Did it start with a genuine interest? You know, the kids started watching baseball games and said, "I really want to play baseball." And then, you know, and is the schedule too rigorous? Because sometimes we burn kids out yeah. because you know we're, we're calling them lazy. But when they're you know seven and they're having five days a week of basketball, you know, baseball practice. It's too much. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is these parents, you know, gung-ho pushing them in elementary school. By the time they're in junior high, a lot of them, I interviewed a lot of orthopedic surgeons. They're like they're too injured to play because they have overuse injuries because they're training kids like they train adults. And kids' bodies are not adult bodies. And sometimes they just get plain old burned out. So sometimes it's so hard to step away as a parent. But... What do you, you know, say to the parents who would be like, well, I don't want, let's say a parent says, I don't want my kid to know that quitting is okay. Because I feel like I've heard that before from yeah. parents. Right. And I think, I think it's a fair thing when you, when you join a team to follow it through. So halfway through the season, they say, you know, I don't feel like doing it. Well, the, I think the greater lesson is you made a commitment. We're going to honor this commitment. We're going to see it through. And next year, if you don't feel like signing up for soccer, we won't sign up, but your team is here and they're depending on you. And I think that's a great life lesson. But I think saying, you know, you're, you're playing soccer for the next five years, whether you like it or not, is, is a lot of what I see. And I particularly see a lot of it in West Los Angeles. Oh, a lot of vicarious fathers trying to live out their dreams of, you know, whatever their athletic, you know, yeah. dream was in high school. They want it for their child. And I've seen fathers rig drafts. I've seen maybe 15 fathers get kicked out by referees for, you know, not being good sports, for yelling at refs. I've seen a fist fight at Barrington Park in Brentwood. I mean, I I cannot begin to tell you what I've seen with my own eyes. And then I think, you know, what is the kid, you know, parents think they're being so involved, but on a shrink's couch one day, what are they going to remember? You know, their dad getting into a fist fight or, you know, that they lost a eight-year-old game by one point i mean we really have lost a little bit of of perspective here so i think malcolm's ten thousand hours might have messed us up a little because maybe you will end up with an amazing baseball player but you're not going to necessarily end up with a balanced child and from and from a neurologic standpoint in terms of how a brain grows you know that the brain benefits from a buffet you know sample a little of this sample a little of that you're growing new pathways as you're sampling. So parents who just drill, drill, drill one thing from the beginning, you know, don't think of it from a neuro- neurologic perspective, but you get more of a lopsided brain. Yeah. And, you you know, say- and, and for your baby, who, who has the 18-month-old? Bianca does. Bianca. Okay. So in, in terms of your baby, in the first three years of life, your baby's brain is tripling in size. It's oh, my God. Biggest, that's put so much pressure on us. It's the biggest brain growth, you know, Mine's yeah, almost two. Ever. And, and I've got one year left little... to make her a genius. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, much more important is the emotional part that they – exactly what you said about the connection because they borrow your nervous system. So if you drop something and go, oh, my gosh, I dropped milk or whatever, then they're, you know, they're going to tend to react that way because they're literally borrowing your nervous system. So – I think a much bigger thing in these early years and elementary years isn't, you know, how much baseball they play, but are you 
being a good emotion coach? Are you teaching them, you know, to to regulate their feelings? Because that kind of goes with you for life. I don't think most, you know, 50-year-old men are playing baseball or 40-year-old men, but managing their feelings <laughs> is kind of an attractive quality to yeah. teach if you have a son or a daughter. You know, that that goes the distance. Well, really... Yeah, and you talk about empathic failure a lot. Um, can you discuss some stuff about that, like about what happens to children when they don't have a parent that they're able to mirror or because, you know, the parents so wigged out spilling milk that the kid's a nervous wreck. I mean, how does that, you know, affect the child throughout life? And and like an empathic failure, there's so many of them. And sometimes when we miss what our kids are feeling, that's a great opportunity to circle back and say, gosh, I don't think I get what you were really trying to tell me. So you can circle back. But like a classic example was there's a kid in my son's elementary school who constantly um, was crying. So he was crying in kindergarten, and the parents would say, get up, get up, you're fine, get up, you're fine. And then in second grade, he was still crying. They'd get up, you're fine, you're fine. And then in sixth grade, he was still crying. And in seventh grade, he was still the first to cry when he got injured. And my older son said, you know, gosh, I think if the parents had just said, are you okay, sweetie, and given him a hug in kindergarten, maybe those feelings would have, you know, he would work through those. So that's an empathic failure. If your kid is really scared or shaken and upset and you say, get up, you're fine. And I know people want to create tough kids, but when they're really little, sometimes they need that locked gaze. Oh, that must have hurt. Mommy's done that too. I know how that knee feels when you scrape it. Instead of the narcissistic, how could you do this to me? Yeah, that, when you start, that's the, that, is the key statement that, that the, how can you do this to me? You know, I saw a kid, you know, literally like a, you know, two-year-old in a grocery cart and was just kind of being antsy and, and was, you know, spilled something, was drinking and spilled something. Mom had, and she said, I'm going to be late now. How could you do this to me? How? You ruined my whole day. And I was thinking, oh, poor little, poor little kid. You know, he, little baby doesn't have the coordination to be holding that little sippy cup or whatever, slipped out there was nothing personal. You know, we take sometimes personal things that are just developmental, you know, and the how can you do this to me, that's actually a key thing is getting ourselves out of the way. Again, that was Dr. Robin Berman, and her book is Permission to Parent, How to Raise Your Child with Love and Limits. All right, so now I will be sharing with you guys the Rye Parenting Method expert, Janet Lansbury. She's the author of No Bad Kids and also Elevating Child Care. And she talks about strengthening the parent-child bond and setting clear boundaries while still validating your child's feelings. She was able to take a hands-on approach when we sat down with her in Bianca's living room. In the part I'll be playing for you, Bianca's daughter Magnolia had woken up from a nap And Janet was able to show us how she speaks directly to a child who may not have the words yet, but who is certainly understanding much and having a complex inner experience herself. After this episode, Janet and I became pen pals of sorts, and I wrote her that um, I studied the humanities in college, and I wish there had been a course in how to be human. It could have unraveled all the wound-up perfectionism, repression, and need to fix and please that most of the student body suffered. Majoring in theater was the closest I got to learning how to be human, and acting, especially Meisner training, had been the most useful tool I've had as a parent. It taught me how to listen, how to be grounded and empathetic, and how to hold the space for someone having ginormous emotions. And so in my email to her, I also wrote, After having the opportunity to talk to you, I can't get over how much of parenting is about the parent's responsibility to relearn how to be human so that they can accept their child's humanness too. We should have a learn to be a better human so you can be a better parent workshop or something. That might be the best idea ever or just a really strange one. I haven't decided. The title alone, How to Be Human, would be sure to alienate everyone. So I will be sharing part of our Janet Lansbury episode. And if you feel so inclined, you can listen to the episode in its entirety, um, again, in our archives. So check that out. Hey, guys, it's Bianca. So during the break, 
My daughter Magnolia woke up from her nap and came into the room where we were recording with Janet. And Janet started to ask her a few questions about her experience on our flight when I got frustrated and took that frustration out on Magnolia's father, my husband, Michael. I was so blown away by the intensity and focus with which Magnolia locked on Janet when she was speaking to her about her experience. And it really solidified and made me realize how important it is to validate our kids' feelings and to allow them the space to talk about them. Even when we think, especially in these early years, that they doesn't seem like they have much to say, I realized how wrong I was in this moment with my daughter, and Ellie and I really wanted to share it with you. I apologize because we weren't planning on recording it, so Magnolia is a little far away from the microphone. It's a little difficult to hear her sometimes. But also, further into the conversation, I motioned for our nanny Jessica to come and take Magnolia without making sure that Magnolia was prepared or ready to leave. And that opened up a whole new can of worms (laughs) for Janet to, again, teach us and guide us and show us uh, how much our kids need us to be present with them and just to let them know what's going on. And um, so Ellie and I really wanted to share this with you and uh, hope you enjoy. I apologize. I said I'm sorry. But you still yelled at Papa. Let's not <laughs> let that go by. <laughs> but I still yelled at Papa. She has a right to own that. <laughs> Don't take that away from me, Mom. <laughs> So. What was that like when your mom when your mom yelled at your papa? Papa. Was papa sad? Uh, no. Papa. Did he look disappointed? Uh, was he yeah? Was was it scary for you when mama yelled? Mama. Mama yelled. On the plane. Mama. Mama yelled on the plane. Papa. At Papa. Poor Papa, right? He was trying really hard and he got yelled at. Papa. Papa. And then Mama said, I'm sorry. We all breathed. Yeah. So sometimes children will want to, I mean, I kind of led that, but sometimes children will want to go over those moments and that's how they process it and that's how they, sometimes they'll play through something, play it out somehow that you won't recognize as part of that, or maybe you will. But they often need to go over those those difficult moments again and again to try to understand and just kind of get it out of their body and like understand it on the plane that was kind of strange right when Papa. papa he got yelled at what did papa do did papa yell doesn't usually feel good to have mama and papa not happy with each other papa. when you're in a papa. kind of stressful situation papa. 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 it's so it's so interesting too like in this moment sitting here and just letting her express herself like my i can feel my stomach wanting to be like direct her somewhere else right like now you know like I can feel myself wanting to be right. like, okay, and now we're right, right, doing right. this, you know, instead of just like, but in doing it and I realizing how much yeah. she actually has to say. Well, but what you're describing is what we all feel to some extent. And this is really the challenge, the biggest challenge of parenting. And when I go around and do talks yeah. uh, and keynotes and things, I, my topic is Mama. the challenge to let feelings Mama. be. Mama. Nurturing emotional health, the challenge to let feelings be. That's what I often talk about because that 
remains Whoa. the biggest challenge for me, even though I know what I know, and I've been trying practicing this for a long time and teaching other people, but to really just let something be. And what I was going to say is on the airplane, if you could say you were on the right track, you seem really frustrated. Stop right there mm. and not trying to wrap it all up and da 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 yeah. You couldn't walk in that. You were saying too much. And too I much. think your intent will come through. So it's not even about the words, worrying about saying the right words. It's really considering. I enjoyed sharing that story with you. Oh, you wanted to sit with your mom. You wanted to stay with her. You want to stay with me? You weren't ready. No, yeah, sometimes, ready. too, we want to tell you beforehand, we want to give you a, a little warning that that's right. what's going to happen because you weren't ready. Mom, I don't want to go away from my mom right now. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Don't take me away from my mom. Yeah, Mommy. and then give me a chance. If it's if it's really time to go, then let me know. Yeah, it's really time to go. I'm not beating up on you. <laughs> By the way, I will totally uh, take the fall for this one because I nodded to Jessica and said it was time. <laughs> so it's old habits. Those, yeah. those old habits, and I mean, it's obviously in that moment, and she sits back down, and she's she instantaneously went to calm. Uh, I realized, like, wow, she bought, she didn't, you know, need to be grabbed like that I didn't need to just send her off without letting her know that that's what we were doing yeah but those are the old habits yeah that's the way and I've just been doing you're not it. different like welcome yeah. to so so right now the best way to do that would be to tell her to say in a couple of minutes it's going to be time to go with Jessica Jessica Magnolia. so after oh. you look at those books for a, that like book for a bit and sit with your mother for a bit it's going to be time to go with Jessica. Um, and sometimes even you can say, can you let us know? Can you look at us when you're ready to go? Where is she going to go with Jessica? Anyway? To the park. Oh, you're going to go to the park. So, park. So when you're ready to go to the park, will you let us know? And she okay. just, for our listeners, she just walked off with Jessica. Ready to go. That's... We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Okay, that was, I felt like I was on the hot seat as a young child in school again. <laughs> I got suddenly very sweaty, and, well, it's, you know, it's just, it's, you want to, and then that's the hardest part. You want to do it the right way. And, you know, it, it just all of a sudden makes you realize how often you're not even thinking about their feelings or what they want. Or you're trying to fix or change their feelings. Well, right? you're just demanding. You're dictating. You're not, you're totally not thinking about it as like it's a separate person. It's more like it's a doll that just kind of comes around with you everywhere. Um, yeah. And so that was really powerful to hear her keep saying Papa and plane. I mean, you don't like to think of the fact that like your child was aware that you yelled at your husband on the plane. I mean, I don't want to think and of myself her that deep breath. Yeah. Which led to all of us breathing more like the release of tension there or whatever might, she might've been holding on. That was pretty magical. Yeah. And then when Jessica went to take Magnolia away and that upset Magnolia because it came out of the blue and it was like unsettling when we gave Magnolia the opportunity to sort of process that she was going to the park um, that it didn't take any longer it, you know, took, that's it was amazing. literally it's five so, seconds I'm sure there's at least one person out there who's like oh great now it's going to take them 30 minutes to get the kid off the mom's lap she'll never do it but that's not what happened like she was told where she was going to go next. She was sort of given her, uh, she was given the opportunity to say like, okay, I'm ready to go now. And then, and, and she, she did went it so easily without herself. any drama. No, she totally just moved and slipped off the chair and off she went with a big old smile on her face. That's been yeah. the coolest thing with goodbyes were hard for us for a little bit. And 
that was the greatest thing ever was reading what you said about you know you have to say goodbye you can't just disappear on your children or you didn't say it I feel weird. I don't want to put words <laughs> in your mouth. That was my interpretation of what you said. Yeah. That no. I can't just slip away because then she's going to end up with like separation anxiety <laughs> disorder or, you know. Or she'll never want to play focused again because right. why should, why, I, if I get deep in focus, people might just be gone. Oh and God, like, it's I, like so I've got to keep my eye on my mom, you know. That's exactly what we don't yes. want, but that's what we teach and them without needing to teach them, yeah. And when I say goodbye now, sometimes she won't be ready. And then we'll look at a book together or something, and they'll be like, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm going now. Um, and then she always just waves, and she's cool with it. And then I'm the one who's like, oh, I'm not as cool with it as she is. But you're being cool with it enough that she's just waving and letting you go. Yeah. That's the thing. The way you said it, I mean, and that's a big one, too, is the separations. And uh, is oftentimes the parent, we get a good test of this in my classes because – we have a gated-in room that we're all in, but then the parents will get up to go to the bathroom sometimes. That's pretty much the only reason they leave. And then sometimes they'll say, okay, I'm going to the bathroom. Okay, uh, <laughs> all right. And then the child's like, eh, and, they're, and their parents still staying there going, okay, you know, I'm be, I'll be right back. I'll be right back, really. I'll just take a minute, da -da -da -da, you know, selling them on it. Yeah, you know, and you just saying that made me nervous because I was like, oh, I'm nervous for you now. <laughs> yeah, so you put yourself in the child's position. That's that's what I do when I'm uh, working with parents is for some reason it's – I think that's why I can do this is that I'm really good at – I don't know, whatever for whatever reason I'm still stuck in toddlerhood, but I'm really good at seeing from that point of view and saying, wait a second, I'm not going to let you go. You're making me really nervous about you going. Yeah. You don't seem okay with going. I should right. protect you, Mom, because yeah. you seem really What's nervous wrong? This is an unsafe situation. You're right. telling me this is bad. and then that's, But that's commonly what happens at preschool, at, uh, you know, whenever it is, I'm just yeah. leaving to go to work. And it's this, we take too long. We're not, we don't say, yeah, I hear you don't like that. I still need to go and I will be back. You know, that kind of comfort in our choice is the key to to all of it so what I wanted to say to you Bianca yeah. is it's not about the words I don't get hung up because that's going to be then you'll always be are the words right yeah it's really not about the words it's about the way we perceive yeah. things and it's about the way we perceive and the situation with the airplane it's about you know it wasn't a great time to test this like I said but it's about the way you perceive her having a feeling about being on an airplane, which I can relate to. I feel like that on airplanes, too. <laughs> I can be off this thing. I can't breathe. You know, it doesn't feel good. Well, um, and, and I think so, also. So just being like, ah, oh, man, this sucks. This sucks. I mean, yeah. not that you want to put that word into her head, but. Oh. Or stinks. Trust me, I say. With, my, with my husband, that's the least of our problems. <laughs> but, like, this is a drag, right? You're stuck in this plane, and we can't get out, and there's all these people, oh, yeah. and we're crowded. And instead of saying, I'm sorry, I can't take you on walking, and all these things that oh, you can't or do. Or just, like, a mother just snapping at her kid. Like, yeah, you know, or just they're feeling the same thing. Yeah. All this stuff, all this effort and energy gets put into and that. If you just let her scream for a second, she'd scream less. You know, if you just been, be like, yeah, tell me how much how terrible this is, rolling out the red carpet for her to have her feeling, yeah. then right. chances are really good that she's going to move on. Move I on. just got an image of like did. a Coke bottle, and you're just shaking, shaking it, it, like, shh. But if you just let it release. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. But what explode. about in that in those moments where there isn't, wherever you are, an airplane, whatever, where there, it's confined and you have to hold on to them, Is doesn't that, doesn't your holding on create more resistance or is that really inconsequential if you are using the right energy and, and language or not language because you said not worry but the, the right feelings around it I think holding on would be okay but I would always consider more I would always think more about containing rather than restraining somebody because right. restraining feels terrible when you're angry that feels Bad. abusive yeah. almost but if you're containing, like, I see these arms going around, you know, like, not saying it, but just, I'm going to stop you. I'm going to put my hands here so that you can't swing at the food or whatever it is. Right. Keeping the movement contained rather than trying to just close it up altogether. So I wouldn't overhold, but certainly holding enough to protect, stop her, protect yes. her from doing something and jumping into the other person's lap yeah. or whatever she's going to do, hitting you, you know. 
fighting everybody, you know, yeah, that, like that weighs, but do the minimal, always do the minimal, you know, that you can do so that you're, you want to always give this, this feeling to your child, like this, you are small and this isn't a big deal to me. You know, I, you're safe, you're small, I'm big, I'm not yeah. threatened by you and this isn't a big deal. So if we overdo, even with the stern face, we're giving the opposite. We're giving, this is a big deal and you're scaring me and yeah. I've got to be really tough because you're so wild and all this. And no, they're little tiny, look how tiny she is. <laughs> I you know. know. And they have such power over us right. to make and us quake in our boots. And when they get, when the parents get so big and scary or like so triggered by the little kid's emotions, like I'm just realizing like, oh, that's why it's scary to have feelings too. Because it's like, wow, if I can, as a baby can have that kind of influence over my own parent if they can react in such an angry way or if I can if I have a feeling that can shake them that much it's kind of like Elsa and Frozen guys because it's like exactly. then you're kind of like oh my god I have too much pa I shouldn't feel these things exactly. because I'm making this whole kingdom shake You've really got it, Ellie. You've got <laughs> <laughs> You're ready to take over my job. So that's good. <laughs> you know what, though? That brought up such... Like, it gives me chills. This stuff is so yeah, important. It's yeah. so powerful. Like... But, I mean, how counter... Did anyone get this as a kid? Uh, does, do we know anyone that really had this full-on, yeah, be angry at me, honey, scream at me? Oh, I love the pillow it... thing. Because you mentioned, like, it's okay to have a tantrum. Just get a pillow. So yeah. Adam was like, what is this pillow doing in the playroom? I'm like, well... <laughs> Sabrina was just, you know, beating out her feelings. <laughs> He's like, what is going on? <laughs> I recently was a part of this spiritual email chain, and it's where people shared one quote that they loved. And so now I'm, they're all coming into my email box, which is fun. Um, I've never done a chain letter thing before, but uh, this one actually – seemed worthwhile <laughs> and it has been so my aunt's friend sent me a great quote and I'm going to share it as the mom bomb today and so she hung this quote above her son's desk in high school and it's from uh, the film the case of Benjamin Button for what it's worth it's never too late or in my case too early to be whoever you want to be there's no time limit stop whenever you want you can change or stay the same there are no rules to this thing. We can make the best or the worst of it. I hope you make the best of it. I hope you see things that startle you. I hope you feel things you never felt before. I hope you meet people with a different point of view. I hope you live a life you're proud of. If you find that you're not, I hope you have the courage to start all over again. So Atomic Mom listeners... Trust in your goodness, live out your greatness, and rock on, Atomic Moms.